This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. It's Tuesday and that means it's time for our crack strategy panel. As always, there's a lot to talk about, starting with the new leader of the Conservative Party, Aaron O'Toole, and the prospect of a fall election. I'd say that prospect is not high, especially since there's a new poll showing that a majority of decided voters believe Justin Trudeau and the Liberals are the best choice to lead us out of the pandemic. Uh, and since we started talking about all of this yesterday, Doug Ford has said that he won't be campaigning for O'Toole anytime soon, maybe anytime at all. And of course, there's plenty to dish about the political happening south of the border. Last week, we had the Democratic National Convention and the Republicans are at it now under the guidance of some of the producers who used to run The Apprentice, no less. So we'd like to hear from you, your thoughts on all these things. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. Now let's go to John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner of Fleischmann-Hillard High Road, Charles Bird, Managing Principal of Earnscliff Strategy Group in Toronto, and Karen Stintz, the CEO of Variety Village. Hello, everyone. Hello there. Let's start with John. Well, your your guy didn't get in. What, what do you make of the Aaron O'Toole election? Uh, well, like you know, I think like everybody, we're we're happy that the uh, that the campaign is over. That was obviously a long, long campaign that started uh, in uh, in January and and sort of you know, and of course there was a huge pause, uh, rightly so, during COVID, and then and then it regained some some momentum for the final push uh, over the last couple of months, but. I think it was it was a good campaign. I, I didn't like the fact that at some points of it there was some internal bickering that that, that you know obviously we see in, in leadership campaigns, but but more importantly it's over. Uh, and I think that uh, that again another important issue is that Aaron O'Toole uh, was uh, was elected by the membership uh, with a very significant mandate. Uh, fifty six fifty seven percent I guess was was sort of the final vote, uh, which I thought you know obviously gives him a huge amount of. Opportunity and and the mandate to be able to go and and unite the party and and put his stamp on uh, the Conservative Party, which I think is going to be needed, given the fact that we've had, you know, sort of an interim leader, I guess, with, with Andrew Shiro since the election campaign. Uh, but I thought his speech that night of, or I should say, the more the next morning at one thirty in the morning, as some of us were watching, was really really good. It was humble. Uh, it was uh, inclusive. I thought his press conference that he gave earlier today. Uh, was equally uh, powerful and, and good. And I think he's made a, a really good first couple of days uh, by way of an impression to uh, to conservatives and to Canadians. Yeah, he's been described as uh, sort of the opposite of, of Justin Trudeau, as uh, more steak than sizzle, not a lot of sizzle there. Uh, and Canadians don't really know him, Karen Stintz, even though he served as a cabinet minister. Yeah, I think that's fair to say, Libby, that uh, he's not a well-known quantity. And um, but I think he he's uh, I think he has a bit more than Andrew Scheer had coming into the position. 
Uh, he did run yeah. twice for leader, and he is seen. I think even though he didn't, he wasn't successful in the last round. He was seen as an up and comer in the party. Um, he's got long roots in the party, deep roots rather in the party, and and I, I, I think that he has earned a reputation as someone who is confident, and um, you know he he certainly does embrace the stake. <laughs> So much of just a strong, stable, pragmatic leader who is, uh, I would say, the opposite of Justin Trudeau. But um, in, in, in terms of the, you know, the public persona of charismatic and whatnot, but nonetheless, is a very strong, steady hand. And, and I, I think the Conservatives made the right choice. Charles, uh, are the Liberals cheering or are, are they shaking in their boots? Um, to be honest, I think we were a little more concerned about Peter McKay becoming um, leader for the very reason you cite Libby, which is name recognition. Aaron O'Toole doesn't have a lot, and that's going to be uh, quite the mountain for him to climb in relatively short order, especially if we do find ourselves into an election next spring or even conceivably this fall. I, I think there's still some possibility of that happening. Uh, he's got some other, Mr. O'Toole has some other issues as well. His French is abysmal. Um, he seems to be largely beholden to Jason Kenney, the premier of Alberta, the one premier who uncharacteristically came out in support of uh, a federal leadership candidate. Uh, there's no doubt that social conservatives put him over the top. I mean, more than 40% of the first ballot votes went to um, the two also-rans, although one of the also-rans, Leslin Lewis, came very close to winning the whole thing. Uh, she was just a few percentage points off of uh, coming second on the second ballot. Yeah. And no telling what might have happened after that. Um, and he's also got some issues with, with, with the, the campaign he ran. I, I think the... the the threat of a, of um, legal action against Peter McKay really set the party back. Um, his platform said quite openly, and he has said quite openly, that he would scale back relief payments to Canadians in the midst of COVID. Um, his platform makes reference to defunding the CBC. I mean, that's red meat stuff. Uh, his platform also says he wants to roll back gun laws which is not going to play well at all in the GTA and the surrounding regions. And even goes as far as to de-emphasize carbon in efforts to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. I mean, he seems to think that there are other things we should be concentrating on when it comes to carbon dioxide other than carbon. Um, so there are definitely some challenges there. And given how relatively unknown he is, it's, it's, the age-old saying that if you do not define yourself, your opponents will define you for you. Uh, just I a few liberal, minutes. I see Charles is picking up from the liberal speaking spin notes, obviously, and and, <laughs> uh, and and sort of you know starting off right off the bat and, and trying to trying to define it. But you know, at the end of the day, Libby, you know, the liberals are going to do this. They're they're that's what that's what the Trudeau and, and his government is is all about. Is instead of you know celebrating and 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 sort of saying you know congratulations, um, uh, they're off to uh, to try to. To spin all the negative stuff. At the end oh, of the day, Trudeau I think did what's, say important, congratulations. what's important is is that Aaron is is not unknown, and he, he didn't make he makes no bones about it. In fact, he started off his speech in, uh, on uh, his victory speech on Sunday by saying, "You know, I my name is Aaron O'Toole," and I think that's the key thing is that he'll have some time to define himself.
Uh, just before air, a few minutes before air, uh, he released uh, some of his senior staff. And uh, as we've seen recently, that makes a big difference, uh, certainly uh, in terms of Justin Trudeau and, and his uh, scandals there. And, and uh, in terms of the liberals, it's a very uh, PMO-run government. So he's got Tasha Michaud as the chief of staff, who was with him when he was Minister of Veteran Affairs, Fred Delory as national campaign manager, and he he, of course, is a veteran of Harper and Doug Ford's campaign. Um, do you have any comments about these people who will be more behind the scenes and that most of us don't know? Well, I, I think they're all quite qualified. I think they're all extremely uh, experienced in, in, in politics. Um, and uh, I think we'll serve Aaron well. It, it's, you know, it's not a surprise that you will go with the people that surrounded you during the leadership campaign, as Tasha uh, and Fred uh, have been. And, and I know that Fred was also um, a campaign manager to uh, Christine Elliott and uh, has a lot of links to uh, to both Aaron and, and Christine. And, of course, Christine Elliott did support uh, Aaron O'Toole during the leadership. So, you know, I'm not surprised. I think that, that you know, Fred really knows politics and campaigning. Uh, and to be the campaign chair, it, it makes a lot of sense. Um, and, and Tasha, you know, will be an extremely uh, competent uh, and, uh, and and valued member of, of the team as uh, as his chief of staff. Karen, the consensus seems to be, I mean, we saw Justin Trudeau practically dared the opposition to force an election. And the consensus seems to be that Canadians are really not in the mood for this uh, and might punish whoever triggers an election. Do you agree with that? Oh, very much so. I agree with that sentiment that, uh, you know, the, the, the bloc has kind of put themselves in a position where they're forced now to bring forward this non-confidence motion or vote against the throne speech. Uh, but, you know, I, I don't I don't think the country with so much uncertainty in front of so many people. Uh, you know, in terms of their kids going back to school or the security of their job, uh, no one's going to be paying attention to an election. And in fact, will I think not as in your point, Libby, will punish those who called for the election. It does put the conservatives in a very awkward situation because they can't be seen to be supporting the government. And uh, but it, they they also will not benefit from an election being called right now. So uh, you know, I, I don't know how it will all play out. You know, hopefully, cooler heads will prevail. But uh, I, I certainly think that that there is. I don't think there will be an election in the fall. Uh, Charles, there there seems to be a consensus that there is more to drop about the We scandal, and also there are grumblings. The Prime Minister prorogued Parliament. He has said on a number of occasions previously that he would never do that. That's a Harper thing. Uh, are people just going to forget about those things? Well, Stephen Harper, Stephen Harper prorogued Parliament on four separate occasions. This is the first time that Prime Minister Trudeau has, has done so. And, his and third I think he's theme. done so for very specific reasons. As I was saying last week, I mean, the loss of a finance minister is a significant occurrence in the life of any government. Uh, fortunately, uh, Minister Freeland seems well up to the challenge of assuming the responsibility. But proroguing Parliament means that... Um, they can have a cabinet retreat. They can come back with a speech from the throne um, and then come forward with an economic statement. And this actually affords a number of weeks for ministers to gather and deliberate what the economic recovery is going to look like, as opposed to the short-term measures that have uh, seen Canadians through the worst of the pandemic to date. 
And, of course, we have to be ready for what might befall us um, uh, later this fall in terms of the second wave, in terms of flare-ups, in terms of what might happen when our kids are back in school. I mean, these are all significant unknowns, so I think it's entirely appropriate at a critical juncture like this when economic recovery is really becoming the watchword of the day for the government to hit the reset button. And in terms of committees looking at we, I mean, they'll all be back. Whether there's anything else to emerge, time will tell. John, there are people who think that uh, the Trudeau government will be taking the opportunity to really rework our social safety net system and really broaden it and spend a lot more money uh, sort of under the guise of the pandemic. Uh, Do you worry about that? Of course. And also, let me just address a couple of the issues that that Charles raised, which which I think need to be need to be countered and and quite frankly, need to be addressed. One is everything that Charles said about the need for his view of the need for for proroguing uh, can be done without the House being prorogued other than the throne speech, um, cabinet meetings and all that kind of stuff all could be done without, you didn't need to do that. But I find it strange. And I think your, your listeners you need to know that, that, you know, it, it, it was more than the height of coincidence that, that they allowed for the 5,000 pages, uh, to be released the day of, of when the, um, the House was, was prorogued so that the, essentially rendered the committee that was supposed to look into those and report back and, and quite frankly, challenge the government uh, useless because it was it was prorogued and, and it disbanded the committee. So you had to sort of get Pierre Paulov, who I thought did a very effective job, to be able to, to highlight the fact that the majority of the pages were, were, were redacted um, to a point where you didn't even know who the emails were sent to. So that, I think, needs to be addressed because, you know, a lot of Canadians aren't being fooled by the fact that the House needs to be prorogued when, when everything was going on. And also to announce the the CERB EI announcement also the day after the House was prorogued so that the Parliament couldn't debate it and couldn't address those issues. It just, it, you know, this, this whole thing about sunny ways and about doing things differently that, that, you know, the Prime Minister tried to set out with his first term and, and tried to sort of make the second term about it is just nonsense. And I think Canadians aren't being fooled. So it's not surprising that you're seeing polls that show a bit of a split with respect to election. You know, I've seen one that had, you know, slightly against having an election, but also the ones that favor an election wasn't that low. So, uh, you know, it's going to be interesting to see how this all evolves, but Canadians aren't being fooled by this. And I think that the more the prime minister is trying to hide and obfuscate his responsibilities, the more people are going to realize what's going on. And now that the Conservatives have a permanent leader uh, and they're an tool, I think they're going to be challenged and those PLC poll numbers change. Uh- Charles, I mean, also in terms of an election. So uh, the actual counting of the ballots was a, a real you-know-what show. And if that's you, what happens trying to count mail ballots in a leadership race, you know, what would happen uh, in a general election? I mean, are we even ready and capable? And I mean, I don't even want to get into what's going on in the United States in terms of that. Yeah, I mean, obviously, mail-in ballots have become a hot-button issue in the United States, where President Trump, without without any real evidence, is suggesting that somehow mail-in ballots will uh, lead to widespread voter fraud, et cetera, et cetera. It, it, you know, it, it's nuts, and it's obviously part of you know his deep concern about losing, where he's 
at this point recast the election as either I win or it's rigged. It's one of the two. Um, but in the Canadian context, Elections Canada, fortunately, is a little better at running elections than the Conservative Party of Canada. Although I will say in defense of the Conservative Party, and, and John will likely back me up on this, you know, those kinds of delays do happen. And when they happen, they're happening for good reason, which is to say that the integrity of any voting process is absolutely the paramount consideration. And if you need to take an extra two, three, four, five, six hours to get it right, then you take that time because you cannot rush things through and just come to the conclusion and and just reach a conclusion that may not be borne out by um, what the ballots actually say. So I, you know, no one's going to remember the fact that the conservatives managed to muck up their, their voting processes. Embarrassing. Yes. Lack of planning. Yes completely unfit to be the next governor of Canada, yes. But, you know, <laughs> John, um, I, I, but apart just, from that. John, I have a question. So is it just uh, sort of the whole voting process, that's kind of, uh, that was contracted out to, correct? Yes, uh, yeah, and, and, and to Charles's point, I think, you know, in, in every party and, and has gone that, and it is their worst nightmare. I know the, the, the organizing committee chairs, both Lynn, uh, Lisa Raid and, and uh, Dan Nolan, very, very well. And I, I just feel for them because it's the last thing you ever want to do. Um, but obviously it happens. But but Charles's point is right. You want to make sure, you know, it, it, the delay, you never know uh, how long it's going to be. You want to get it done. But at the end of the day, what you don't want is to have any other of the camps, uh, you know, suing each other based on the fact that they felt that there was some illegality going or some funny business happening and the fact that they came up with the with the results and and none of the none of the campaigns or camps you know raised their hand to say hey i have an objection i think proves that 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 what they did was right which is you know get the process done right get the votes in uh and also i think what helps too is the fact that aaron won by significant margin i think if it was a little closer uh you, you might have you might have had some some eyebrows raised but the fact that he won by you know close to uh Eight or nine points, I think, uh, uh, you know, leaves leaves a lot of people feeling that you know that the, the numbers were fine. And plus, it was only about three percent of the ballots that were affected by the by the uh, by the issue. Karen, uh, let's turn to what's going on in the states. Is it just kind of uh, wacky entertainment for us, or uh, is it going to have an impact on things? <laughs> Certainly, may have to be more specific. <laughs> what's going on down there? I'm kidding. <laughs> Well, the the two conventions, the Democratic the convention that we saw last week and the the Republican convention that is on now. Yeah, you know, I think it was. Um, so what what was interesting for me is the uh, the Democratic convention. They, you know, again, who has always done an online convention, right? So the Democrats were first out of the gate and, you know, trying to get some, uh, you know, a bump, as it were, for having elected or having, you know, the 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 the, the candidates nominated, and Joe Biden is excited to have Kamala Harris with him, and you know, so there was some excitement that they wanted to generate. But again, no one's done an online convention before, and so they, you know, they did their best. And uh, you know, what was um, interesting is that uh, during Michelle Obama's speech, there was that um, Republican from Baltimore that put out her 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 speech. Do you know who and her name's escaping me right now. But but the theme of her speech at the same time Michelle Obama was giving hers was that Democrats are taking advantage of their base. Of and 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 that was the theme that went into the Republican Party that they ended up launching is that Democrats can't be trusted, they're taking advantage of you, they're corrupt, they're gonna 
And, and so some of that, I think, um, might be resonating. And, and one of the things that they had, uh, one of the themes that has been emerging is that when you look at all the Democratic states and how uh, the black population is, is either advancing or not in those Democratic cities and states, you can see that they're not. And so then there's the whole Black Lives Matter issue that's reemerging. And suddenly the Democrats have lost that issue, which should be theirs. They should own that issue. They should own um, advancement. They should own, um, you know, the, the the solution towards the racial racial inequality that exists in America. And suddenly they're losing grip on that issue. And so it's it's, it's interesting to see how some of the new conversations are taking place um, around the conventions and around Donald Trump. That you know, and that, that that the Republicans actually seem to have a little bit of life. And I wouldn't have expected that two or three weeks ago. Um, and even though there's so much unrest in the U.S., I read only one in seven parents in the public school system are going to send their kids back to school. Um, and yet the Democrats, at a time that they should be owning the agenda in so many ways, seem to be losing a little bit. And so that's, that's interesting for me to watch. Well, and, and they seem to be, the, the gap seems to be narrowing. Um, uh, I'm glad you mentioned going back to school. So, uh, Charles and the army of teachers in your family. <laughs> what is the conversation around the virtual table? They're, they're on the march, let me tell you. Um, <laughs> let, me, let me just quickly comment on uh, the Republicans' first night. At okay, well, yeah, uh, just be nice, okay? Uh, I, I, will, I will just say that you know, when... You, you know, you mentioned Kim Gilfoy, who got up and, and yelled for six very memorable minutes uh, to an empty room. What you had last night was a lineup as determined by Donald Trump. I mean, Kim Gilfoy is Donald Trump Jr.'s girlfriend. She has virtually no other reason to be on that stage than just that. And it appears that the Republican National Convention is just like um, everything about the Republicans these days. It has an audience of one, and that audience is Donald Trump. They are, this, this is their last chance to have a legitimate shot of winning re-election in November. And yes, the numbers will tighten. It happens every election. But they are really hard up against it, and they have very limited airtime to make some key cases as to why the Democrats would be a disaster. And what we're hearing is that... Um, you know, cities will be on fire. Uh, Biden will ban the suburbs. I mean, just just absolutely surreal, crazy talk that will only appeal to the narrowest band of, of people who are already Trump supporters and will do nothing to expand his electoral base, as he so desperately needs to do. Um, as for the teachers, I mean, there obviously the return to school has been delayed till September 15th. Um, for a lot of uh, teachers and students, that's providing a little bit of comfort, but the unease is still there. I mean, folks are really keeping a very close eye on on the numbers in terms of new infections. I think there's a lot of concern over what's going on in U.S. colleges at the moment. And we had the University of Alabama reporting 500 new cases of COVID since the resumption of classes just a week or so ago. Um, it's clear that when you when you bring kids together, um, bad things can happen in the context of the virus. And so there, you know, again, the great hope is that Canada has done such a great job of keeping the virus under control that 
hopefully we have suppressed it sufficiently that when there are inevitable flare-ups, we'll be able to deal with them. But, boy, sending your kids back to school this fall or being a teacher going back into the classroom, that is, uh, it's scary stuff. Charles, are you sending your kids back to school? I am. We are. We yeah. are. Uh, and, Karen? and that's after many, many um, long nights of discussion. Um, and also uh, talking to our kids a little bit. And they're, uh, it helps that they are absolutely raving to go back to school. Just they, they really, really want to do it. Karen? Absolutely. Yeah, my kids are in grade uh, 9 and 11. And uh, for, uh, you know, not to get too personal, but my son, he wants to go to engineering school and he's taking some pretty hard courses. And the online instruction did not work for him last year. And so um, as he's talking, you know, as he's moving into taking physics and chemistry, he's got to have that in-class instruction. Um, But I I will say, again, uh, because we had the experience running camps in July and August, um, you know, the kids kids have a a really strong awareness about the new norm. And, you know, we see kids frequently washing their hands you know, keeping their distance, um, you know, even kids wear masks. So we don't make it mandatory because a lot of our kids can't manage the mask on their own. But but we see the behavior changing. And um, so I, I think that that is, um, you know, maybe not as prevalent in some districts, but certainly in, in Toronto and in, in the kids that we see, there is a heightened awareness that they're, that they have, um, that they have to take their own precautions. And, and I think that's good. That bodes well. And John, uh, is, is your daughter still in school? Yeah, and, and we'll be going back as well. Um, but I, I do agree. I think that you know, there's that that whole anxiety with respect to um, to uh, that every parent uh, obviously will you know is going to be facing and, and is facing now as, as we're getting nearer to the to the September and school starting. But um, you know, it, it's it's not surprising that parents do want their kids to go back to school. Um, but I, but I think the pressure on the school boards to ensure that their respective regions are, are, you know, have up, have the, the rules and all the, uh, issues that they need to get, to get done before, uh, before it happens, I think has to be to a level where it does have not only the safety for their kids and the teachers and, and all the workers, but, but the parents. It's going to be an interesting, uh, uh, you know, experiment to see how it all, all plays out. But I know that, with, with Premier Ford and, and the minister uh, and the health officials here in Ontario, they're going to be watching it, as Charles uh, as, as alluded to. They're going to be watching it very carefully to see what, what happens. And I, and I know that there won't, there won't even be a second thought if they have to pull the plug and, and go back to online uh, online uh, teaching if, if for some reason they see a surge or, or they're seeing kids within the various classrooms getting uh, getting uh, getting COVID uh, or the teachers, quite frankly. So it'll it'll be it'll be interesting to see what what happens. But but the anxiety is is warranted given given just everybody is is, is watching and wanting to see that. What they then they also want to make it make sure that it works. And just a couple of things before I wrap up uh, our next segment, we're going to be talking to Doris Greenspoon, who says that uh, the arrangements are too up in the air, that class sizes has to be capped. And there are a lot of people saying that, that class sizes are still too big for the return to school. Um, and uh, the other thing that I just wanted to touch on before we go, because we're running out of time and, and maybe for Charles and in this in terms of teachers, I am wondering, be this, uh, you know, uh, uh, talking to someone who has a, a daughter who's a very young teacher who's thinking, well, things will open up this fall because a lot of teachers who are close to retirement will just pack it in because they're nervous. Uh, do you have any inkling of that, Charles? 
Yeah, most school boards actually had provisions in place where if teachers wanted to signal a desire to retire or retire early or go on leave because of, you know, whatever reason underlying conditions that might make them more susceptible to COVID, that there has been um, fairly lengthy notification periods in place for some time. So school boards saw this coming and wanted to make sure they knew exactly how many teachers would be in the classroom. So hopefully that will mitigate that particular Okay, I'm going to give each one of you uh, 30 seconds to wrap things up. Uh, John? Well, uh, just uh, excited that uh, Errol Toole is the new leader of our party, excited that he's had a really good couple of hours, 48 hours or so as, as leader, and, and look forward to uh, to the next uh, you know, little while as we, uh, as we see what happens when, uh, when the, the Parliament comes back. Karen? Yeah, I hope that we can get, uh, you know, some some resolution around the schools and people feel better about having the kids go back to school. Of course, we all need to take our precautions, but um, I feel confident and hopeful that uh, we can get the kids back in class and uh, look forward to that. And Charles. Aaron O'Toole owes his leadership victory to Jason Kenney and to social conservatives. He's going to have to be extremely careful over the next few weeks as to how he positions himself. Uh, He's looking far too poor oil and gas and not nearly pro-environment enough for the taste of a lot of Canadians, especially in urban centres. Okay, thank you so much to our Crack Strategy panel, Charles Bird, John Capobianco, and Karen Stintz. Uh, we'll talk Thanks, to you next week. Thanks. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.